0: Next up is an honorary professor of economics at the Frankfurt School of Finance and Management in Frankfurt. Adjunct scholar at the Mises Institute, specializes in Austrian money theory and capital market theory. He also works at a bank, a big bank, but the bank will go unnamed today. Speaking about a priori theory and the sound money principle. Please help me welcome Thorsten Platt. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a great honor for me to speak at the supporters summit of the Ludwig von Mises Institute in Vienna. I would like to say thank you very much for inviting me it's, uh, to this extraordinary and exciting event. In the early 1950s, Ludwig von Mises wrote, quote, The sound money principle has two aspects. It is affirmative in approving the market's choice of a commonly used medium of exchange. It is negative in obstructing the government's Propensity to meddle with the currency system. And further, it is impossible to grasp the meaning of the idea of sound money if one does not realize that it was devised as an instrument for the protection of civil liberties against despotic inroads on the part of governments. Ideologically speaking, it belongs in the same class with political constitutions and bills of right. So to me, this is the sound money principle stands for, first, free choice of currency, meaning money that is chosen in the free market by the free supply of and free demand for money. And second the sound money principle stands as a defense line against government violations of individual property rights. Now, we can say that if money does not comply with the sound money principle, that is, if it is unsound money, it will erode and eventually destroy civil liberties by despotic inroads on the part of government. Such A statement. No, that's fine. uh, Thank you very much. Such a statement can be shown to be irrefutably true as it is derived from the sound money principle. And the sound money principle can be traced back to the irrefutably true axiom of human action, which is at the heart of praxeology. The logic of human action as, as Mises termed it. In the remainder of my talk, I would like, uh, first, to briefly point out that praxeology is a priori theory, and second, I would like to show that the sound money principle can be logically deduced from praxeology, and third, I will explain, based on a priori theory, that sound money will be replaced by unsound money once public ownership of government has been put into place and that the purchasing power of fiat money will be increasingly destroyed. One of Mises' path-breaking achievements, and there were many, is that he reconstructed the science of economics along the lines of praxeology. And at the heart of praxeology is the axiom of human action. The axiom of human action is of a rather special quality, it meets the requirements of an so-called a priori synthetic judgment, as the German Prussian philosopher Immanuel Kant called it. To explain, a priori here means knowledge that comes to us without or irrespective of sensory experience. A priori knowledge is within our minds, so to speak. It is knowledge about reality. And for obtaining it, one does not have to take recourse to observation. Two examples may illustrate this insight. First, if this thing is one meter long, it is not two meters long. Or, if A is taller than B and B is taller than C, then A is taller than A. These statements are a priori true. Synthetic means that one adds to a concept, say, body, a predicate, say, heavy, which is not thought in the concept before. An example is, all bodies are heavy. You would have to learn from experience that bodies are heavy. You wouldn't know this a priori. You would therefore expect that synthetic judgments are so-called are posteriori judgments, that is, they are derived from experience. Now, Immanuel Kant maintained that they are so-called a priori synthetic judgments, judgments that neither repeat the meaning of the concept tautologically, nor express new information about the subject term on the basis of experience. A priori judgments are hard to detect, to Kant, a priori synthetic judgment must meet two requirements. First, they are not derived from experience, but from inner reflection. Second, they must be self evident. That is, the truth value cannot be denied without running into an intellectual contradiction. Mises axiom of human action meets both of these requirements. The, action, the axiom is not derived from sensory observation. To understand that human acts, that humans act, stems from a reflective understanding, not from observation. And the axiom is self-evident. The truth value of the axiom of human action cannot be denied, as such a denial would be a form of action, and thus contradict the very statement that there cannot be human action in the first place. Having said that, praxeology provides us with true knowledge about the outer world, and such knowledge is valid, independent of sensory experience. It is in this sense that we can speak of praxeology as a priori theory. An a priori economic proposition, and a proposition is a statement that claims to say something true about reality, informs us about the relationship between observable events and the counterfactual alternatives to these events. An a priori proposition tells us about the outcome of a certain action. Consider the following a priori proposition. A rise in the money supply will lower the exchange value of a money unit. Below the purchasing power it would command had the money stock remained unchanged. From praxeology, we know that the law of a diminishing marginal utility is implied in the axiom of human action. This law basically says that the marginal utility of a unit, of a good, declines if the supply of the good increases. We can therefore say with certainty that a rise in the money stock necessarily lowers the purchasing power of a money unit. This is, of course, not to say that a prioriistic propositions allow us to make an exact forecast in a quantitative sense. For instance, we do not know how, by how much the purchasing power of a money unit declines if and when the money stock increases. However, a priori theory can tell us in advance, that is, without Engaging in social experimentation, whether or not a given action can or cannot bring about the promised effects. For instance, we can say with certainty that the rise in the money supply doesn't convey any social benefits, as money's sole function is the means of exchange function. What a rise in the money supply does is benefiting the earlier receivers of the newly created money at the expense of the later receivers of the new money balances. One does not have to take recourse to testing to see that a rise in the money supply lowers the purchasing power of money, doesn't create output and jobs, and leads to a redistribution of income which doesn't conform with free market principles. From a priori theory, we know that these statements are derived from praxeology and therefore they are irrefutably True. Now let me show that the sound money principle represents a priori knowledge, as it can be traced back to the axiom of human action. To do so, we have to start with stating some true uh, propositions which can be logically derived from the axiom of human action. From the irrefutably true human uh, axiom of human action, we know that human action is purposeful action. Means are employed to achieve certain ends. We also know that means are scarce with regard to the services for which man wants to use them. And because of the scarcity of means, we also know that man prefers more goods or fewer goods. Now let us assume that people realize that the division of labor yields a higher productivity than self-sufficient production, and that they will then engage in specialization and trade. Trading becomes most efficient if people make use of an indirect means of exchange. Exchanging goods against a a good with a higher marketability expands individual actors' markets, allowing them to take full advantage of the productivity gains provided by the division of labor. The commodity with the highest marketability will be chosen as money, and money I should define as uh, the universally accepted means of exchange. Ludwig von Mises described the process as follows. There would be an inevitable tendency for the less marketable of the series of goods used as media of exchange to be one by one rejected until at last only a single commodity remained." which was universally employed as a medium of exchange, in a word, money. Why, however, is money chosen by the unhampered market necessarily commodity money, as Mises maintains, and before him, Karl Menger. Already in 1912, Mises had shown with his regression theorem that money must have emerged for a priori considerations from a commodity. People demand money because there's uncertainty, and money has purchasing power, that is, it can be exchanged against other vendable items most in a most convenient way. The purchasing power of money is determined by the supply of and demand for money. But isn't this a circular explanation? If the purchasing power of money is determined by the supply of and demand for money, how can... This explained the demand for money, which is, as I said earlier, determined by the purchasing power of money. Mises, in his regression theorem, found the answer to this question. He explained that the demand for money in the present can be explained by money's purchasing power experienced in the immediate past. Mises saw that the purchasing power of money can be regressively traced back to the point in time when a commodity which has been used so far for non-monetary purposes is used for monetary purposes for the first time. From a praxeology, praxeologically viewpoint, we can conclude therefore that in a free market where people are assumed to be governed by self-interest and have the ability to appreciate the higher productivity resulting from a division of labor, money must emerge in the form of a commodity. We can also conclude that free market money corresponds to the sound money principle as free market money emerges without government. Government playing no role in this spontaneous selection process. Against this backdrop, the following question arises. How can it be that today's monies, be it the US dollar, the Chinese renminbi, the euro, the British pound, the Swiss franc, are no longer commodity monies and that they are not produced freely in the marketplace. Today's monies are so-called fiat monies, monies that represent intrinsically valueless paper tickets or bits and bytes on computer hard disks. They are not redeemable into anything. These fiat monies are produced by government-sponsored central banks, which hold the monopoly of money production. We know from history that the gold standard was, in an admittedly prolonged process, replaced by fiat money. In general, mainstream economists maintain that this happened because the gold standard failed as it didn't allow for a flexible or politically motivated change in the money supply. However, a priori theory offers a different explanation of why the gold standard, sound money, was replaced by fiat money, so unsound money. The central element in this a priori explanation is the concept of government. Murray Rothbard developed a new Austrian theory of government, or state for that matter. He defined the state as follows. The state is that organization in society which attempts to maintain a monopoly of the use of force and violence in a given territorial area. In particular, it is the only organization in society that obtains its revenue not by voluntary contribution or payment for services rendered, but by coercion. Rothbard not only explained that government is incompatible with a free market society, he also outlined in his fantastic book What Has Government to our Done to Our Money?, how and why commodity money was replaced by fiat money. Again, the key element in his explanation is government, or to be more precise, public ownership of government. Professor Hans-Hermann Hoppe explored in greatest detail the economic and ethical implications of public ownership of government, or you could say majority rule, as represented most prominently by democracy, rep- republicanism, showing that once public ownership of government is put into place, ever greater violations of individual property rights will be the logical consequence. Two interrelated factors explain this. First, under public ownership of government, there will be temporary caretakers of government power, so-called politicians or the ruling class. Assuming self-interest, The caretakers of government will use their temporary government power to their own advantage, whatever this advantage might be. The caretakers of government will try to maximize, and this is important, their current income rather than the present value of all future government revenues. For what the temporary caretaker of government doesn't consume in the present, when he holds government power, he won't be able to consume in the future. And second, public ownership of government also means that those who want to be among the class of the rulers need the support from the majority of the people. The latter, also assumed to be driven by self-interest, will support those who will provide them with desired monetary or non-monetary benefits. The caretakers of government will have to muster the support of the majority of the voters to get into and stay in power. This can only be achieved by promising and providing potential voters with benefits they otherwise wouldn't or couldn't obtain. And these benefits will have to be expropriated, and necessarily so, from others. Assuming that voters prefer more goods or fewer goods, which is, as we have seen earlier, a logical implication of the axiom of human action, it becomes obvious why public ownership of government will necessarily result in progressive violations of individual property rights. Some forms of private property violations are more attractive uh, than others from the viewpoint of both the rulers and the ruled. Using fiat money is politically speaking much more attractive compared with obvious forms of expropriation and theft such as raising taxes. Having recourse to fiat money, Rothbard noted, government can appropriate resources slyly and almost unnoticed without rousing the hostility touched off by taxation. Rothbard then described the various steps, steps through which commodity money is replaced by fiat money including, for instance, the monopolization of the minting business, giving money a name uh, rather than defining it as a weight of the commodity it represents, etc. The final step in replacing commodity money by fiat money is allowing banks to suspend the redemption of outstanding banknotes or or site or demand deposits in money proper. In practice, it was gold. And this is actually what happened on 15th of August 1971 at the latest when President Nixon closed the gold window in a television address President Nixon said quote, "I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the American dollar except in amounts and conditions Determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interests of the United States. And further, the effect of this action, in other words, will be to stabilize the dollar. President Nixon's order meant that the US dollar was no longer redeemable in gold. The measure, of course, was not temporarily, it's still in place, and it did not stabilize the US dollar. Since August 1971 until July this year, the greenback lost around about 82% of its purchasing power, uh, calculated on the basis of consumer prices. In the system of Bretton Woods, all major currencies, the British pound, the French franc, the Japanese yen, the D-mark, and many, many others, were linked to the U.S. dollar. With the suspension of the redeemability of the greenback in gold, all these currencies were also cut loose from gold. Commodity monies became fiat monies. We can conclude here that replacing commodity money by fiat money, and that is replacing the sound money principle by the unsound money principle, is from a praxeology viewpoint a logical consequence of public ownership of government. And we also find that fiat money can only be established by government violating individual property rights. What has a priori theory to say about the question whether fiat money can last or whether it will have to collapse? The answer can be found by looking at the Austrian trade cycle theory, in particular by taking into account two important elements of the theory, which I may say may all too easily escape our attention. Now, First, ongoing injections of fiat money produced to bank circulation credit to fight the crisis which has been caused by fiat money in the first place prevent unprofitable investment from being liquidated, as these investment can be refinanced at lower interest rates and therefore appears to be profitable. And second, artificially suppressed interest rates brought about by an expansion of bank circulation credit encourage additional investment that would not have been undertaken if the market interest rates hadn't been pushed down by central bank policy. The consequence of these two aspects is that the economy's overall debt load keeps growing faster over time than real incomes grow, leading sooner or later to a situation of over-indebtedness, in particular so if and when government is in the hands of temporary caretakers. A fiat money regime will therefore end up, and logically so, in a situation in which borrowers will no longer be in a position, or willing for that matter, to service their debt and lenders will no longer be willing to roll over maturing debt. It is at this point when the printing of ever greater amounts of fiat money will be seen as the policy of the least evil. Why? Why? public ownership of government brings a growing degree of aggression against individuals' property rights. It thereby reduces people's encompassing interest in the market economy and increasing the interest in securing transfer incomes on the part of the people. For instance, those employed by government and firms receiving orders from Public sector entities will increasingly be in favor of an expanding government as big government will give them at least the chance of bigger business and higher monetary or non-monetary incomes. In view of the possibility to obtain benefits, a growing number of people, all assumed to be driven by self-interest, team up with government. And so people's encompassing interest in the market economy will be increasingly eroding. Frederick Bastiat put the underlying logic succinctly. Government is that great fiction through which everybody endeavors to live at the expense of everybody else. Mises expressed the same insight when he wrote in early 1923, so a couple of months uh, before uh, there was hyperinflation in Austria and then later in November in, in Germany, quote, if a government is not in a position to negotiate loans and does not dare levy additional taxation for fear that the financial and economic effects will be revealed too clearly too soon so that it will lose support for its program, it always considered, it always considers it necessary to undertake inflationary measures. Thus, inflation becomes one of the most important psychologically aids to an economic policy which tries to camouflage its effects. By deceiving public opinion, it permits a system of government to continue which would have no hope of receiving the approval of the people if conditions were frankly explained to them. In a so-called crisis, those close to government will indeed favor further increases of the fiat money supply over a government default or the default of banks, for that matter. For in a default, the beneficiaries of government cannot help but making income and wealth losses. By further increases in the fiat money supply, in contrast, the beneficiaries of government can hope to escape these losses, at least for the time being, or they can hope to benefit from further increases in the money stock as they are relatively close to government and thus benefit as early receivers of the new money over those who receive the money at a later point in time. So from the viewpoint of a priori theory, we know that if the sound money principle is replaced by the unsound money principle, which is, as I tried to point out a logical consequence of adopting public ownership of government, the purchasing power of fiat money will be, and necessarily so, increasingly ruined by high inflation or even hyperinflation. In my talk, I I have tried to point out that the sound money principle can be deduced from the axiom of human action, which is at the heart of praxeology. We found that sound money is axiomatic in nature, We also saw that the sound money principle has been replaced as a logical result of public ownership of government by the unsound money principle. Money production is monopolized by government and government's power over money production has allowed for ever greater violations of individuals' property rights. Unsound money causes malinvestment, boom and bust cycles and a non-market conforming distribution of income. And as a result of crisis-fighting policies, regulation, taxation, prohibitions, etc., government increasingly erodes individual freedom. Is there a way back to sound money or a way back to the sound money principle? Mises wrote, The belief that a sound monetary system can once again be attained without making substantial changes in economic policy is a serious error. What is needed, first and foremost, is to renounce all inflationist fallacies. This renunciation cannot last, however, if it is not firmly grounded on a full and complete divorce of ideology from all imperialist, militarist, protectionist, statist, and socialist ideas. The key issue for reestablishing the money principle is, to follow Mises, unmasking false theories, This is because theories are at the heart of human action. Mises put it as follows. Action is preceded by thinking. He who thinks a causal relation thinks a theorem. Action without thinking, practice without theory are unimaginable. A priori theory is a powerful intellectual tool for distinguishing between correct theories and false theories. In fact, a priori theory puts us in a position to unmask false economic theories, ex ante. That is, we know before we put them in place whether or not they can achieve the desired results. From Mises' praxeology, which is a priori theory, we know that government brings unsound money with all its socially and economically disastrous consequences, and that sound money can only emerge and be upheld in a private property society where there is no government, at least where there is no form of public ownership of government. I would like to say thank you very much for your attention.